Good morning. As we hear the word today, I'll be offering a piece of Psalm 22. And as we listen to the word, listen to the message given to you for this particular moment in your particular day for your particular life. I'll be reading it slowly so we have a chance to really listen. Listen for what resonates or what rings true. Any offer of encouragement or instruction. Listen for any invitation into a truer reality or the experience of a truer reality of God's presence with you. Or maybe listen for what sounds like a shift in orientation in your faith or for your life. Listen to the word as if you could reach out and touch the word's presence with us here and now. This painting is of Mary at the precise moment of her encounter with the word of God coming to her in Annunciation. So today I invite you to listen to the word as if there's little annunciations falling on all of you like seeds that are ready to blossom into new life. And if you hear nothing, only silence, and you feel nothing, only absence, then realize this is Lent. And embrace the silence and absence as presence. Psalm 22. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor the Lord. All you descendants of Israel, revere the Lord. For God has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. God does not hide from us, but listens when we cry for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you, O God. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will offer praise. May our hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you, O God. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and the Lord rules the nations all who prosper on the earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before the Lord, even those who cannot preserve their own life. Those who fear the Lord and their descendants will serve him 
the next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare God's righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what God has done for all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Beth. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this week. I um, I missed you guys last week. I was teaching up in Portland, which was really fun. I had a chance to go visit a church called Bridgetown there in Portland, which is just such a cool place. Had such a great time. I um, loved the the woman that was teaching that day. It was a beautiful message. I, I listened to Travis afterwards, and I was like, his was better. Um, but uh, maybe I'm a little partial, but um, I just loved it last week. I thought Travis did such a great job, so thank you for that. What a gift that is. Um, I know. Yeah. I mean, come on. Grateful for him. Um, so it's Lent, and Lent is a season where we practice uh, a fasting and building anticipation for Good Friday that's to come a way of us savoring the fullness of what God did. I, I think too easily we rush ahead to the, to the party. The, the Easter is this moment of Hosanna. It's this moment of triumph. But Lent is where we remember the cost. We remember the deep work that God has done to set this world right and is continuing to do this deep work. Thanks be to God in a world that needs it, that is broken. And we all experience that. Um, I experienced that within myself. I I was thinking Lent is a a time of confession, so I thought I would confess something to you guys this morning. If I know, right? Um, So, and this one is embarrassing to admit to, but uh, on Friday I failed my lead climbing test at Center One Climbing Gym, and uh, I mean I've been climbing for like 30 years. I was shocked. Apparently my belay technique wasn't smooth enough. And, and so my response to the guy, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I've climbed Washington Column in Yosemite. I like spent the night a thousand feet up. I did this like core roof that you have to lead. I led that whole thing. And we didn't even have this like newfangled belay device that you have. We like used a figure eight that you had to use like the small end and pinch the rope through. So like when you lowered somebody, it got so hot, you like burn your hand. And then my daughter took the class too, and she failed, and she's tearing up. And I'm like, nobody talks to my daughter that way. (laughs) And the guy just smiled because I didn't say any of that out loud. (laughs) And he was like, hey, you just need to practice more. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, man. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so... We did. We kind of like went with our like tail between our legs and, uh, and practiced. You know, and I think here's the truth, that sometimes in life we have these moments that are humbling, where the way we see ourselves doesn't necessarily match reality, and we're reminded that we don't have it all together. And I don't know about you, but I certainly don't have it all together. I like to think that I do, or I like to think good enough, right? Like, I know it's not perfect, but good enough. And there are times like this which actually I think are a gift that show us, oh no, there's more. And 
All I need to do is practice. In a season like Lent, we, we set something aside, and it, it's a way of practicing. Practicing something that is so important that we get right. That our lives are not run by these passions or desires or whatever whim crosses our minds. That there's a perseverance that is setting in. A character that is being developed. Allowing us to live more and more like Jesus lived in this world. And so when I fast, I I realize how attached I am to my comforts. My pleasures, these things that I like to hold on to. Travis shared that he's giving up coffee for Lent. I'm not that brave. <laughs> I'd love to hear how that's going. You know, thank you for the encouragement of that. I, um, I, what I've been trying to do during Lent, this is going to sound odd, but like I'm really trying each day of Lent to practice forgiving. That um, I realize I have attachments that I like to hold on to where I've been um, wronged or something like that, that I realize I I take a sort of comfort in. Do you know what I'm talking about? A little bit of resentment that like kind of feels good to hold on to. And practicing like letting go, really forgiving, really making sure I'm getting like, not just like pulling the tops of the weeds out, but getting the roots of that out. It's good work. It's freeing work, but it's difficult because I like resentment. I like a little bit of bitterness in there. It's uh, it's this weird way of comforting. And I see how Jesus is saying, "Let's let's be done with that, Jeff. Let's stop carrying that thing around." I um, Lent to me is about practicing the things that are most important. And so we don't, again, lay aside sin per se during Lent because we do that all year, right? Lay aside sin all year long. Sorry, that's the deal. But um, but maybe a secondary thing that's becoming more important than it should. How we keep the first things the first things, which maybe raises that question for all of us. What does that even mean? What What are the first things? In other words, like, what are we here to do? Why are we here? And how do we make that our focus? I um, have been reading a book with a small group called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. It's on, like, stoicism, and it's beautiful. I think Marcus, if he was to say what our chief end is, I'm, like, kind of guessing a little bit here, but I think he would say, like, living in agreement with virtue. How do we live a truly virtuous life? And I love that. I mean, I honestly see that as something that's been lost in a lot of ways. I think our our culture could use a little virtue and understanding the importance of that. Marcus would say, not just a virtuous life lived before others, but a virtuous life lived independent, like for its own sake. And when I look at Christianity, I think, well, Would that fit? Do those two sort of coincide? Certainly, it is about virtue. But I think that what we're being called to is actually something a layer deeper than that. That if we were asked, what is the main thing? What is the thing that should define our lives? What is the thing that that everything else should surrender to? I... 
I would use a different word. I would use, instead of virtue, and this is maybe influenced by something I'm reading right now, but I would use the word today, communion. That our life is to center around communion. Center around intimacy. Both communion with God and communion with others. That essentially this is the the very nature of love itself. That more important even than living a good, virtuous life is living connected to God and connected to others. As Jesus would say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The second being just like it. In communion, I like that word because it, it gets at something I think even deeper, the very nature of what that looks like. You think about the Eucharist, you think about the elements that we take, and we remember not just the reality of love, but sacrificial love. I don't have a slide for this this morning because, bless Greg's heart, he's sick this morning. I had explicitly told him he's not allowed to miss Sundays. But um, we sure miss him. And uh, Greg, if you are listening, I hope you're resting and feeling better. But, but listen to this. This is from being as communion. In the Eucharist, we can find all the dimensions of communion. God communicates himself to us. We enter into communion with him. The participants of the sacrament enter into communion with one another. And creation as a whole enters through man into communion with God. All this takes place in Christ and the Spirit who brings the last days into history and offers to the world a foretaste of the kingdom. This simple thing is is what's like unfolding. It's what's redeeming. It's what's saving the world. It's this love given to us that we receive and then we take and pour out. The answer is in this communion. It's what we were made and designed for, this intimacy with God. An intimacy that was broken. And the brokenness then comes out in this independence, this like need to be right, this need for control, this desire to have my way, to do what's right in my own eyes. And this is the poison, this is the thing that God is attempting to fix. And and so if you read the Bible from Genesis all the way to the maps, this is like the story that's being told of God creating and designing. We see the story beginning with intimacy. I love this. Like, Scripture tells us that it's God in whom we live and move and have our being, and yet he would meet Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening to walk with them in the garden. This is the purpose. God created these free creatures in his image with the ability to think and create and to choose for this purpose of intimacy. And we know in the story that that gets broken and we see the sort of unfolding, all the consequences and ramifications of that brokenness. Something we still see as we look into the world. So much harm that is being done. But that painful part of looking at our own life and realizing, oh, I have played my part in that brokenness. Things in me that are still out of sort, things in me that demand to be right or to have my rights. 
And so practicing this communion, living this out, is something that we do daily in little ways, in little behaviors, acts of considering others more important than ourselves, opportunities to extend forgiveness and grace to others that have wronged us, chances for us to do something sacrificially, generously, that when we do this, we're bringing something divine in God's kingdom here to earth. And we've been going through the lectionary, and so Beth beautifully read us uh, the psalm for today. There's an Old Testament passage that deals with Abraham, and and it really is this calling where God says to Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring this blessing and redemption to the world, and I'm going to do it through you that you are going to be the chosen, the blessed people, because you get to bless the world. And in Psalm 22, those beautiful words, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Amen. It's for all, right? This is the way the blessing works. You don't, you don't get to have this blessing and then hold it to yourself. That's what the brokenness wants to do, is take the good and somehow possess it or keep it for my own or for my little group over here. But no, this blessing is there, especially for the poor, to go all the way to the ends of the earth which, you know, nowadays we know there aren't ends to the earth, right? It's a globe. But um, fun fact, if you walk the Camino, it ends in Santiago, but technically it ends all the way at the coast at a little town called Finisterra, which literally means the end of the earth. And so when Jesus said that, take this to the ends of the earth, James, dutifully, carried it all the way to the end. Well done, James. He's kind of an overachiever. Um, But this idea, the ends of the earth, right? What we know is that means that everywhere, this expansion, that this message is to be brought to everyone, everywhere, not withheld, not kept for ourselves. Something in the grace goes bad when we do that like the manna that God provides in the wilderness, right? You, you try to hold on to it and keep a little bit for tomorrow and it rots. It's meant for today to be given away today and especially to the ones who are suffering, the ones that have experienced the consequences of that sin most acutely. How do we go to them and give to them? And the answer that we're going to see is modeled by Christ himself but then we are all called to. And I would like to say that it's some warm, fuzzy, comfortable thing, but, but the reality is it's not. That it's, it's a kind of love that sacrifices. It's costly. And in Mark 8, 31 to 33, Jesus says this. It says, Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God, to suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. It's necessary. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. 
You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. I've told you that story where there was a guy in one of my classes, it was this philosophy class, and my professor said to him, like, oh, John, you've missed the whole point of this class. And we were all like, Ugh. like, and it's like not what you want to hear, right? And it was from like the, the, the professor that everybody looked up to, right? Like, you've missed the whole point. Like, um, nobody wants to hear that. Peter, poor Peter. Peter, you've missed the whole point of the class. You're thinking about human concerns, not God's concerns. Now, if we look at this sensibly, like what Peter's saying makes sense. Like he's going, hey, we're going to suffer and die and go to the cross. And Peter's like, hmm, or maybe like an army of angels comes down and wipes these guys out and then we take over. Like better idea, right? Maybe something that doesn't cause such suffering. Maybe something where we instead are able to just set up our reign and rule over the oppressors, over them, over the evil ones, right? Rome has like basically has this iron fist over Jerusalem and he's going, if we could just liberate that, everything would be fine. And Jesus is saying it's not because you still, that poison would be in you. That brokenness that exists, it exists in all of you, right? We're pulling all of that out by the roots. And so this love necessarily sacrifices, necessarily suffers. That ego in me, the the independence, the thing that needs to get its own way, doesn't need to just suffer, it needs to die. That thing needs to be deprived of oxygen. That thing needs to wither and shrink so that my heart can become free and love with freedom. So that grace passes right through and out to others. But it requires this sense of yielding, of letting go. This is what Peter still needed to learn, that that we think in our human concerns towards comfort, towards prosperity, but God thinks towards redemption, and as we're going to see, transformation. God isn't just setting things right. God is making something new. And it's beautiful. But it takes work. It takes time. And often it hurts. So in Mark 8, he continues to go on. After he's rebuked poor Peter, Peter's like, they're red-faced. Like, shoot. He had gotten a question right before this. Like he had said, you're the Messiah. And Jesus was like, good job, Peter. And then he was like, now I need to die. And Peter was like, no. And he's like, wrong, Peter. So here's Peter, a little humbled. And Jesus continues on with the message. He says, he called the crowd along with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's our assignment given What are we here to do? Well, to follow in the footsteps of our rabbi, to follow Jesus on this course. And as he takes up his cross, he's saying, you too, grab your little cross and come with me. 
You deny yourself. You lose this old life so that you can gain this new one. This is the thing that we preserve as we yield, something that is eternal, that we sacrifice some of the comforts of this world, but for something of eternally greater value. And the tragedy when we don't, to try to hold on to this world, to live as if if this is everything, to pursue those pleasures like fame and prosperity and you know and to and this accumulation of treasures on earth all of that in the end ends up being a huge rip off it robs us of our life and our joy but ultimately in the end it's like living for some virtual reality that gets shut off with the switch the things instead that we're being invited to live for are things of substance and things that last the things that endure. And Jesus models this in the way of the cross. He models this in the way of sacrifice. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays his life down for his friends. But this is what we are called to as well, which is why during Lent we practice sacrifice, which is why we lay down comforts for the sake of noticing others in need. We practice giving and giving in secret, not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing, as Jesus would say. Practicing these acts, not because these are somehow saving us, but because this is what it means to actually follow Christ. And when we do and obey in this way, Jesus says, I don't call you my servants, I call you my friends. This is how communion with God works. To love the least of these is to love God. And so this receiving and this giving, this is the rhythm that we live in. This is the rhythm that we practice day after day after day. Receiving God's love, staying connected, and then giving it away. You can think of it if you're like, in your basic physics classes, like potential versus kinetic energy. That, that we re- receive this love from God. It's why we would do things like a quiet retreat, right? A place to just simply sit in and receive. As we read the, the beautiful words in the psalm today and we reflect, receive that love and then take and turn that into action. That potential energy becomes kinetic energy. That we respond in grace and we resta- respond in love. And we practice this day after day. And as we do, something is happening within us. We're being changed. I want to just say here, and I think this is important, that this idea of sacrifice and the value of sacrifice is not like somehow reason to stay in like toxic, abusive situations. That there are certain situations that we need to just simply end or get out of and set boundaries towards. It doesn't mean that you deny yourself a sort of self-care, right? And work incredibly like long hours and burn yourself out. That's, That's not what Jesus is talking about. What he is instead saying is that even when we face the inevitable consequences of suffering in this world, that that is doing a work. I like how Lewis would say that's where God is exploiting the evil 
for the sake of good, turning it into something deep and beautiful. And if you're like me, I think sometimes in my life when I experience those things, I don't quite believe it. I don't see it. I don't understand what God is doing. I've told you this, kind of confessed this, that that sometimes I look at how God has done something and see the value of what God has done over time, and yet I think, I bet we could have done that better. A little bit more efficient, a little less costly. Like, thank you, God, that you got us here, but did it have to be so expensive along the way? As if arriving there is the goal, right? Getting through life as clean as possible. Isn't that the goal? And you're like, no, the goal is communion, which means learning to love. That is the goal. And so what I experience in the hardships and all of that, in some ways it's like Jesus is saying, okay, It's actually the good stuff. That's where the real work happens. I was reminded of this uh, from Oswald Chambers recently. And um, if any of you have read My Utmost for His Highest, this is from September 30th. And uh, it's it's a beautiful, to me, reflection of what God is doing. And he uses, like Oswald does, he uses some kind of big words. So you got a word like consecration in there and sanctification. These instead, these are like theological terms that, that talk about the deep healing, restoring, and transforming work that God is doing. The sanctification is the outworking of the gospel within our hearts, purifying, creating something new. And so Oswald says this, or Oz if you want to call him that. He says, we take our own spiritual consecration and try to make it into a call of God. But when we get right with him, he brushes all this aside. Then he gives us a tremendous riveting pain to fashion our attention, to fasten our attention on something we never even dreamed could be his call for us. And for one radiant flashing moment, we see his purpose and we say, here am I, send me. Here's the part that stuck out to me. This call has nothing to do with personal sanctification, but with being made broken bread and poured out wine. Once again, communion. Yet God can never make us into wine if we object to the fingers he chooses to use to crush us. We say, if God would only use his own fingers and make me broken bread and poured out wine in a special way, then I wouldn't object. It's like almost verbatim what I would say. Like, let's do this in a special way. But when he uses someone we dislike or some set of circumstances to which we said we would never submit to crush us, then we object. We must never try to choose the place of our own martyrdom. If we are ever going to be made into wine, we will have to be crushed. You cannot drink grapes. Grapes become wine only when they have been squeezed. And I look at that, and that may seem a little simplistic, but I I think it actually explains quite a bit of the way that God works. Like if God took me up on a mountaintop and did this like gentle crushing of the grapes there, but no, it happens in rejection and misunderstanding and painful moments in life. By people that were like, God, what a jerk, 
right? But God is going like, in all of this, when we yield, when we surrender, like what is being squeezed out of us is something rich and complex and deep and beautiful. The human way is to protect the grapes at all costs, as if that was the goal. Keep those grapes from getting bruised. Keep, you know, like the fruit. Protect the fruit. And what we find is that God is not primarily a gardener. He's primarily a vintner. He's going, oh, the purpose of you is the wine. Wine that is beautiful and deep and delicious, but wine that is to be poured out like communion for others. Bread that is baked, that is full of life and love and yet broken and given to those in need. This is communion, and it's filled with purpose and intimacy and beauty, but it's costly. I don't know, can you relate to feeling crushed? Can you relate to feeling broken? And for myself, this is what I'm practicing forgiveness towards. Not holding on to resentment for the crushing, but realizing that in the end, underneath all of this, is God using these situations to do a deeper work. A work that is an opportunity for me to yield and to trust God to do. And when I think of my life being poured out sacrificially, I want to think of it as like my offering to somebody else, like it's done for their sake. But, but the truth of the matter is, is God saying, no, Jeff, I do that for your sake. This is for you. And for them. But primarily for you. That as this transformation happens, so comes freedom. So comes joy and meaning, depth and value. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends and then invites us to live out the same, this love, the greatest love. And so it's God's love for us that asks this of us. Here's your C.S. Lewis quote for the day. This is from the problem of pain. God wills our good, and our good is to love him with that responsive love proper to creatures. And to love him, we must know him. And if we know him, we shall in fact fall on our faces. If we do not, that only shows that what we are trying to love is not yet God. Though it may be the nearest approximation to God, which our thought and fantasy can attain. Listen to this. Yet the call is not only to prostration and awe, it is to a reflection of the divine love. A creaturely participation in the divine attributes which is far beyond our present desires. We are bidden to put on Christ, to become like God. That is, whether we like it or not, God intends to give us what we need, not what we now think we want. Once more, we are embarrassed by the intolerable compliment, by too much love, not too little. Once more, we're embarrassed by the intolerable compliment, by too much love, not too little. And God doing this work is an act of his love. And if we are able to really grasp that, 
to respond in truth, we realize that he sees in us so much more than we see in ourselves. He knows what he's doing. And Lent, in this opportunity to lay these things aside, is not out of some sort of like self-flagellation or something like that. It's a way instead of creating more and more room in our hearts to receive this love of God. That we, we might be drawn more and more into this deep work. And I don't know how you feel as you listen to all of this. I, I'm, I wonder if maybe some of you feel some resistance around this. I certainly do. Like, that's enough love, God. Like, let's just like call it a day. How God, I think, does celebrate small little victories and yet is very persistent to continue asking for more. I've joked about this sometimes, like when I feel like I've taken a big step forward in my faith, I'm like, let's take a break for a while. And God's like, no, let's keep going. A lot more room to grow. Is there resistance in myself? Am I wrestling with God over something that he's asking I think sometimes, too, when I think of this deep work, there's confusion around it. I think that sometimes I have gone through things that feel like harder than necessary or more painful. And I think sometimes in this life it's hard to fully comprehend what God is doing. We're told that someday we will see this finished work of what God has done in our hearts. But I think right now, oftentimes what we need is just to trust. God knows what he's doing, even in the midst of the sacrifice. But maybe you feel a little leap of your heart at the idea too. As we think about new wine and the work that God is doing. How God cares about every single one of you. Not just some of you. Every single one of you, he's doing this work already doing this work, already creating a heart that is new, transforming us into something that we wouldn't fathom, but for him knowing us, creating us and designing us for this purpose. And so Paul says this with such confidence. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He who has started this work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Yesterday morning I got up and I pulled out my belay device and I just started practicing, working through, getting that technique down, trying to like get all the kinks out of the system. And I think, what if we were doing that each day as a church, practicing this, keeping the main thing the focus, living in that place of communion, enjoying that place of intimacy, and then giving and extending that to those around. 